Wonderful. Thank you so much uh, for reading. Um, it's great to have you see you here this morning. I'm Johnny Clifton, the pastor here at Redeemer. If I've not met you before, lovely to have you along. Let's pray as we uh, come to look at these words together. Gracious God, thank you so much again that we have the very words of you and of your Son, the Lord Jesus, given to us in the Scriptures. And Father, we feel that even more so as we recognize that these letters are letters from the Lord Jesus to his churches. May we hear what he has to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the um, kind of interesting things, we've been going through these letters now for a few weeks, and one of the interesting things, for, for, for me anyway, studying them is just the, the picture of the Lord Jesus that is painted. You know, of course, we, we have these letters, there's instructions, there's information. But when you remember that these are the letters of the Lord Jesus to his churches, well, something of Christ is revealed as well as we read them. Certainly we see his compassion. We see his closeness, his love and his affection for the churches. But there's something surprising as well about the Lord Jesus. He's, he's more complex, perhaps, than, than we tend to think of him as being. So yes, he, he is our friend, and you get that idea of his closeness, but also in these letters you see that he is the one blazing with glory and holiness. Yes, he is our saviour, the one who shed his blood for us that we might have life, but you also see that he is our Lord as well, who demands complete obedience and perhaps most striking is that with nearly every letter except one, when Jesus comes, he is critical. He is critical of his churches. Kind of thing, don't we? If Jesus turned up here this morning, that he'd be walking around, he'd be smiling, he'd be warm, he'd be friendly, he'd be affirming. I'm sure he would be all those things. But he'd probably also have some criticism if the letters of these churches is anything to go by. And maybe we struggle with that. Maybe we struggle with the idea that Jesus would be critical of us and of our lives. But I want to say that he doesn't give us these criticisms to crush us. Because what he calls us to be, he also empowers us to be as well. Have a look at the very first uh, phrase we get in this letter. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis, these are the words of him, of Jesus, who holds the seven spirits of God. Back in the very first week, we thought about what the seven spirits of God meant. It's, it's like the sevenfold spirit of God. Seven is this idea of perfection or completeness. Jesus has the fullness of the spirit in his hands. And that spirit is the one who brought the entire cosmos into existence. You see what Jesus is saying? I have in my hand the fullness of the spirit and it is that spirit that Jesus gives to us. On our own, we cannot be what Jesus wants us to be. The weary cannot make it to the end. That the tempted cannot resist sin. The hard-hearted cannot love. The compromised cannot pursue holiness. The persecuted cannot remain faithful on their own, but with the complete spirit, the fullness of the spirit, we can be those things. 
Yes, Jesus is critical, but what he calls us to be, he empowers us to be. He holds the spirit in his hand and he offers it to us. And for this church in Sardis, perhaps for any church, that is something they need to hear. Because what Jesus is calling them to be is way beyond what they can do themselves. Let's have a little look. First idea I want to think about is that a dead church is one that is honoured by people before the world. A dead church is honoured by people before the world. So Jesus comes to his church in Sardis and his view, his assessment, well it seems really positive, verse 1, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive. Sardis has a reputation, it has this name. People talked about this church. Perhaps you can imagine other Christians talking about Sardis. Oh, you're from Sardis. Had great things about that church. Great Bible teaching, discipleship, church planting. Wow, what a great church. Or maybe non-Christians would talk about Sardis. There's no mention in this letter of opposition. There's no one trying to shut this church down. They had a good reputation, it seems, before the non-Christians as well. It's a great church. They put on a lovely carol service every year. So good at raising money for the local hospice. Sardis had a name, a reputation for being alive, being dynamic, being vibrant. But Jesus sees something else. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Sure, people honour Sardis in the world. What a church. Have you been? They do such great stuff. But Jesus says, you are dead. It's a bit like biting into an apple. On Friday I got home, it was a hot day. Opened the fridge, thought, nice cold apple. Looked lovely, bit into it. Brown and rotten and horrible inside. Or, or, Or even worse, it's like getting a chocolate egg that's exactly the same size as a Cadbury's cream egg. And it feels the same and you bite in, but there's no cream inside. Sardis looks good. It has this reputation. But it is dead. It is empty. It is rotten. You know, in every other letter, Jesus starts by saying, I know your deeds. And then he lists them. Ephesus. I know your hard work and perseverance. I know that you won't tolerate false teaching. Smyrna, I know your afflictions and poverty, all that you suffered because of me. Pergamon, I I know your faithfulness, your resilience, sharing the gospel even in a stronghold of Satan. Or Thyatira even, I know your love, your faith, your service. If there is anything good to spot... Jesus will spot it. If there's anything to be encouraged by, Jesus will encourage. I remember when I was starting out learning to preach. There'll always be this this time of feedback on your preaching when you, you first start out. And the rule was you had to say something positive to start with. The first thing that you had to say about someone's preaching was it had to be a positive comment, at least one. I remember preaching this real stinker of a sermon. I think it's online somewhere. Uh, I'm not going to tell you actually any more about it in case you dig it out. But I remember it was a real awful, terrible sermon. And, and I kind of I, I wrapped it up early because I thought, this isn't doing me any good. It's not doing them any good. And I just kind of wrapped it up and walked down. I f- faced the feedback the next day, thinking, what on earth are they going to say? Because you know, I couldn't think of anything redeeming about the sermon. 
And the first comment, the first line back was, well, at least it was short. That was, that was the thing. At least it was short. But Jesus is looking at Sardis and he cannot find anything good. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Actually, he does say something, doesn't he? That it's not that they're not doing anything. That there are works and there are deeds. But look at verse 2, how Jesus describes them. I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. He talks about their deeds and their works as being incomplete, lacking something. Yes, you're busy outwardly, you're vibrant before the world, but before the Father, in Jesus' sight, something is missing. Something so fundamental that Jesus can say to this church, you are effectively dead. What is it? What is lacking? We're going to see this more in the second point, so I'm just going to raise it here. But the thing that is lacking is Jesus himself and the gospel. Jesus and his gospel are no longer at the center of what this church are doing. And here's, I think, where we need to pay attention. Because it is possible to have a reputation as a church before the world, but be dead before the Lord. Let me try and give you some examples. A church might have a reputation for being biblical, big on teaching the Bible, big on keeping the commands of Scripture. People say, look, if you want good Bible teaching, go to that that church. It's got this reputation, but that is not necessarily a sign of spiritual vitality, is it? It is possible to teach the Bible and keep the commands of God and have hearts full of self-righteousness and pride full of hatred even towards others who do things differently. Or a church might have a reputation of being spiritual, big on experience, big on having a real encounter with God. You know, people might say, that church, they really know God there. The the worship is is incredible. They, They properly encounter God. But of course, experience and emotions are not necessarily proof of spiritual life. It is possible that the worship and the emotions and the experience aren't really about Jesus. It's just the emotional high itself. A final example. A church might have a reputation for being active in the community. They're doing stuff. Helping addicts and the homeless. Running all sorts of ministries. Meeting all kinds of needs. And they are well liked. That church is so kind, so helpful, so thoughtful. Being kind isn't proof of spiritual vitality. It's possible, isn't it, that all that activity and all that kindness, it's not about loving Jesus and loving the lost. It's about loving ourselves, wanting to be well thought of. Self-glory instead of Christ's glory. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. A dead church is a church that has replaced Jesus with something else. Something else dominates the center. It dominates the motivation. It it dominates the goal. It could be rules. It could be pride. It could be self-glory. It could be experience. It could be the opinion of the world. These things, they push Jesus out. 
Brothers and sisters, I, I don't know what kind of reputation we have before the world or before other Christians. Probably none, and that's fine. But if we are going to pursue a reputation, let us always care more about our reputation before the Lord. May Redeemer never lose Christ from the center of who we are. May we never have a reputation for being alive, for being a Bible-teaching church, or for being a faithful church, but at heart there is no love, no humility, no reverence and awe for Christ. That would be a disaster. A dead church is only honored by people before the world. It has no honor before Christ and his Father. And so Jesus calls Sardis to change. A living church remembers and repents. Secondly, now I've watched a fair few uh, disaster movies in my time. Uh, Armageddon, maybe you want to tick some of these off. Day After Tomorrow. I think one was called Volcano. In fact, you know, you kind of all kind of blur into one really, don't they? They're all named after some natural disaster, volcano, earthquake, heavy rain shower, something like that. But anyway, I've seen a fair few of them. And they always start the same way. Someone sees what's coming. They try and persuade anyone who would listen to do something, to get ready. But nobody does. Nobody listens until it's too late. That's Jesus with the church in Sardis. Verse 2. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Still hope. Verse 3. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Wake up. It's not too late. It's not yet over for this church, but soon it will be. Soon Jesus will come, and he will close this church down. He'll snuff out the light. He'll stop the candle burning. Like a thief. He won't broadcast it. He won't make an appointment. Wake up before it is too late, Jesus says. Now what does waking up mean? How does this dying, dead, sleeping church turn things around? There was a survey uh, very recently actually looking at church attendance across different denominations in the UK. A poll that was done, and then off the back of that, some predictions that were made about what's going to happen to churches in the UK in the next 30, 40 years. Well, they're all nearly, uh, nearly all of them were in decline, uh, and some of them apparently in terminal decline. And a number of these denominations, reading in the, the, the article, have been trying to address ways to reduce that decline, to turn things around, to stop the church dying out. Let's talk about trying to be more relevant, more accessible. So online church, that was a big thing. More in tune with the world, talking about the issues that matter, climate change, social housing. And perhaps there is some need for all of those things. But it's very interesting. What does Jesus say to a church that is dying? To a church that is sleeping, that needs to be revitalized? What's Jesus' advice? Verse 3. Remember. Therefore, what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. If a church is going to become alive again, if it's going to flourish again, if it's going to be filled with spiritual vitality, then this is where it starts. Remember and repent. 
Remember what you have received and heard, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. Hold fast again to that message. Hold fast to Jesus. Back in chapter 1, we saw that the first thing that Jesus gives to these churches, struggling churches, it's not actually a letter, it's not encouragements or instructions. No, the first thing he gives them is a vision of himself. Remember me. That is what Jesus is saying to this dying church. Let me just remind you of some of the things he says. Remember that I am the Alpha and the Omega, the eternal, unchanging, sovereign Lord, seated, enthroned above the earth, chapter 1, verse 8. Remember that I am the man of God, chapter 1, verse 13, made like us in every way, yet without sin. He is the one who breathed and bled and died that we might become like him, sons and daughters of God. Remember, he is the divine Lord, eyes blazing with justice and blazing with love, 1 verse 14. Remember, his word is like a double-edged sword and a cascading waterfall. It is loud and authoritative and powerful, something we must listen to and submit to. Chapter 1, verse 15. And remember that he is the beginning and the end. The one who died and rose again, the one who turns death into a beginning. You see, if your church is dying, you can try and pick off the shelf all sorts of kind of programs and ideas and strategies to breathe new life, but nothing is more powerful than this. To have hearts that truly believe and are captivated by the risen Lord Jesus. Remember, Jesus says, remember me and the gospel and hold on. And when you've remembered, well, then you repent. Repent of all the ways and times that we've put something other than Jesus at the center of our church. Repent of the times. And we've made tradition the main thing about church instead of loving Jesus. Repent of the times when we've made church about being relevant to the world instead of submitting first to Jesus. Repent of the times we've made church about experience first and foremost instead about listening to Jesus. Repent of the times when we've made church about self-glory and self-affirmation instead of worshipping Jesus Christ as Lord. Remember, hold on to me, Jesus says, and repent. And when we remember, and when we repent, well then we walk with Jesus. Have a look at verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. When we remember and and repent, we live like Christ. That's what happens. There's this theme in the New Testament, the idea that when you become a Christian, you put on new clothes. You take off your old self and you put on new clothes. Clothes that are like the Lord Jesus. And Jesus praises those in Sardis who haven't soiled their new clothes. They've sought to keep dressing like Christ, living like Christ. But it's not just living like Christ. When we truly remember and we repent, we don't just live like Christ, we live with Christ. 
Look what Jesus promises. They will walk with me. We walk with Christ. That is a living church. A church filled with Christians who walk with Christ. I just want to stop here for a second or two. Because this idea struck me this week. This idea, walking with Christ, walking with the Lord, is such a big biblical idea. It's right there in the beginning. From the start of creation, and it has been God's desire to walk with us. Back in the Garden of Eden, the Lord came in the cool of the day. Why? So that he could walk in the garden with Adam and Eve, looking to have communion, fellowship, friendship with them both. In Genesis chapter 5, Enoch doesn't die. The Lord takes him. Why? Because he walked with the Lord. He lived his life in step with the living God. In Genesis 6, Noah walked before the Lord. When God calls Abraham and promises to turn the world around, he says to Abraham and all his descendants, walk before me. When Jesus meets people in Mark's gospel, he calls them to get up and to follow him, walk with him. The early name for Christianity in the book of Acts was the way. Christians were people who walked along the way with Christ. See, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a living church? It is to walk with the Lord. Such a beautiful metaphor for the Christian life. Because think about walking. It's, it's relational, isn't it? You don't tend to walk with strangers. Usually you walk with someone you know, someone you have a connection with. The Lord is present with us in all places and at all times. Walking is conversational. Normally when you walk with someone, you talk and you share and you listen. Walking is, is creational. You don't usually walk around your living room, do you? You go outside, you go out for a walk. And as you walk, you observe the beauty of God's world and his hidden invisible attributes and qualities are revealed before your eyes. Walking is steady and ongoing. Sometimes it's slow, but always you're moving. And as we walk with the Lord, we move forward. Step by step, deeper in our knowledge of him, further in our godliness, closer to home. Sometimes short and slow steps. Other times long strides, but we keep walking. That is the Christian life, to walk with Christ. Charles Spurgeon, preaching in the 19th century, spoke of the blessing that comes from walking with the Lord. It will be on the screen. He writes, If you change positions in life, are cast into poverty, if you are thrown among strangers or cast among foes, tremble not, for the Lord shall guide thee continually. Live near to God. Like Enoch, walk with God and you cannot mistake your road. You have infallible wisdom to direct you, immutable love to comfort you and eternal power to defend you. Here is the heartbeat of Christianity. This is what a living church looks like. It is filled with Christians walking with the living God. They remember, they repent, and they walk with Christ. There's an African-American slave song. Um, It's just extraordinary, actually, to think about what our brothers and sisters were facing as they they wrote this song. And yet in all their misery, in all their slavery, 
What did they want deep down? Well, the words will be on the screen. Listen to the chorus. Just a closer walk with thee, grant it, Jesus, is my plea. Daily walking close to thee, let it be, dear Lord, let it be. These brothers and sisters, one above all else, I'm sure they wanted freedom. But they wanted a closer walk with the Lord Jesus. And if that was true for them, it must be true for us. May that be our prayer. Lord Jesus, this my plea, daily walking close to thee. Let it be, Lord, let it be. Brothers and sisters, we're going to remain a living church. Then this is where it starts. With each of us walking with the Lord. We remember, we repent, and we walk with Christ. And as we finish, just have a look to see what is in store for those who remember and repent, for those who believe the gospel. Finally, a living church is honoured by Jesus before the Father. Now this letter, remember, it begins with Jesus saying to the church in Sardis, sure, you've, you've got a reputation in the world. Sure, people in the world think you're alive. But I won't honour you before my Father. But look how it ends, verse 5. The one who is victorious, I will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. What a promise. We will stand with Jesus before the father and Jesus will say to us, I know you. I know him, I know her, they belong to me. Father, they have walked through life with me. They can now walk through eternity with us. See, then we will have a name and a reputation that is worth having, a name and a reputation that is honoured and recognised by Jesus before the Father. And this name, this reputation, is not of our own making. Look what Jesus says just before verse 5. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. Jesus clothes us in white. White is this picture of purity and faithfulness. Chapter 7 of Revelation, we have a vision of all these believers standing before the throne, clothed in white, and the angel tells John, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus that cleanses us, our past, our muddied life, our shame, it is washed clean by Jesus. It's not just covered up, you know. It's not as if you took the white robes off and underneath there's all the gunk and the grime and every deep regret that you have, it's still emblazoned upon you. Those dirty clothes are taken away. The Lord Jesus gives us blazing white clothes. No shame, nothing to fear. We are clothed in white. We are given a new name. A new reputation, the name and the reputation of Christ himself. And so when we stand before the Father with Jesus, the Father smiles on us like he smiles on his Son. The Father welcomes us into his eternal presence as he welcomes the Son. What is it that matters most to us as a church? To be honoured by people before the world? or to be honoured by Jesus before the Father. Nothing matters more in this world than for Jesus to say to us, 
and the Father to say to us, I know you. Come in, my son. Come in, my daughter. Walk with me. Feast with me. Rest in my presence. To be honored by the Son before the Father, dressed in white robes, given to us by the Son. That is what we long for. I don't think we're a Sardis church. I don't think we're a dead church. I don't think we're a hollow church. But it might be that some of us are Sardis Christians. It might be that you come Sunday by Sunday and you just go through the motions. It might be that you know how to put on a good show and you know how to help and smile and be polite and be kind. But deep down, you have no affection for Christ. I think I've got to say, I've got to pass on this warning from Jesus. If you know that is you, then wake up before it is too late. Remember, repent, and find true and lasting life afresh in the Lord Jesus. You can't do that on your own. How does the dead person raise himself to life? They can't. How does a sleeping person wake themselves up? Well, they can't. How does someone who's forgotten remember? Well, they can't. And so we end where we started. The Lord Jesus holds in his hand the fullness of the Spirit. Pray and ask that the Lord would give you his Spirit, that you might wake up, remember, repent, walk with Christ, and be honored before the Father on that day. We want to be a living church, a church that is honored by the Lord Jesus before his Father. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you so much. You don't necessarily always tell us what we want to hear, but you do tell us what we need to hear. Father, there may be some here amongst us, even this morning, who are Sardis-like Christians, who are sleeping, who have lost all sense of being alive with Christ. Lord, may your spirit awaken them, even this morning. Father, for all of us, we pray that we would never lose the Lord Jesus from the centre of what we are about as a church family. May he capture our hearts, our imaginations. May we do what we do for his glory. May we gather Sunday by Sunday to be in his presence, to hear him speak to us and change us and come alongside us. Father, we pray that Redeemer would have a good reputation before others. But it would be a reputation of honouring Christ and loving him and serving him above all else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.